I need to ask if anybody is driving toward Vegas this week, I need to hitch a ride. I need to be at Area 51 by Thursday. All right, Area 51 is uh, part of an Air Force base in southern Nevada, and it is the place where supposedly there are some stored alien bodies that died in UFO crash. And the whole story started back in 1947 with a craft that crashed in Roswell, New Mexico on a ranch in the desert outside of town. Uh, Supposedly it was a UFO and there were aliens that died in the crash and the government has grabbed their bodies and hidden them and and there's supposed video of an alien autopsy that happened in Area 51. And what actually happened at Roswell is perfectly explainable. It was a, a weather balloon, but it wasn't detecting weather, it was, it had top secret radio information on it, uh, radio technology. They were trying to get above the curvature of the earth so they could listen for the Soviets' atomic bomb tests uh, over the North Pole. And so this looked like a weather balloon, but it actually had some other stuff on it. And so when it crashed, it didn't look like a weather balloon. And, and the story has grown and gone crazy until now Roswell, New Mexico is a mecca for the alien believers, and it's actually pretty explainable and understandable what happened. But since then, people have become convinced that there's these alien bodies uh, being hidden in Area 51. So a few months ago, probably May or June, a, a guy online creates a Facebook event and says, let's storm Area 51. Hey, they can't kill us all. And <laughs> it will just rush the fence and somebody will get through and we will find the truth about whether there's alien life or not, because every president since Jimmy Carter, who said he saw a UFO uh, before he became president, every president since uh, Carter has promised that when I become president, I will release all the government's UFO information, and I will tell you the truth, and then none of them ever do. And so this, there's a whole crowd of people out there that are just like, let's just, let's just storm Area 51. Well, some, several hundred thousand people signed up to be there this Thursday. And, uh, hey, they can't kill us all. Well, actually, um, it's not gone well so far. Just this last week, two Belgian men were arrested for trying to, uh, just like three or four days ago, were arrested for trying to get in. I don't know why they beat the crowd. And when we took Will to George Fox three weeks ago, we happened to just sit down by a family at a picnic table outside the cafeteria, and we're talking. And and, and when I asked him what he did, he was very cryptic. He said, well, I, I work in a computer lab in New Mexico. And I said, oh, is that Los Alamos? And, and he's like, oh, you've heard of that? Like, yeah. He's, well, yeah. So he has some sort of top secret job at a government. Los Alamos is where the Manhattan Project was, where they made the atomic bombs. And it's still a pretty top secret place. And so I started poking around asking <laughs> questions. Because Sarah's great aunt worked there during World War II. And she was an office staff, not science staff. But anyway, we got some connections. We're telling stories. And I brought up Area 51 with a smirk and a wink. And I said, I said are you going to be in in Nevada in September 20th? And he's like, no. And I said, well, they can't kill us all. And I kind of winked. I kind of winked, you know, and government employees are not known for their humor. And uh, sense of humor, and he says, yes, they can. (laughs) And he said, totally serious, he says, they already have. It's not been publicized in the media, but people have tried already since just this summer. And he said, "We, we shot one man who jumped the fence just to do not be there and do not try. Yes, sir. All right, so what actually, what I expect on Thursday is a media circus. All the media cameras are going to be there, and everybody's going to be there with their cell phone, but nobody's actually going to be there to do anything. 
because that's just the world we live in. You know, we're all watch things happen rather than make them happen. But I'm going to go. No, <laughs> not really. Not really. Okay, so the Roswell event is really explainable. It, it truly is. But there are some events that are not explainable. There are some UFO and uh, alien events that, I don't know, you need to see it. So here we go. In 1952, there were UFOs that buzzed the Capitol building and the White House. Two different nights over a span of two weeks, they were seen on three different government radar stations around the Air Force bases and airports around Washington, D.C., and this is film footage of what people saw that night, one of those two nights. These triangular light formations made up of multiple light dots, and they were not, the U.S. government at the time admitted those are not U.S. planes, and they're not Soviet planes. Uh, The radar operators said that sometimes it was many multiple dots on the radar, and other times they would instantly be one, and then they would go back. They would take right angle turns without slowing down or without any curve at all. They would just, just instant right angles, and they would go up and down in elevation faster than any mechanical technology of the time. Nobody understood what it was. Very recently, just within the last few months, the Department of Defense has declassified two video footage pieces from Navy airplanes, one in 2004 off the coast of California at San Diego, the other in 2015 off the east coast of the United States over the Atlantic. And this next video is an interview with the pilot, the Navy pilot, from 2004 off the California coast. UFOs have been the stuff of conspiracy theorists for decades, often mocked for talking about it, but maybe they shouldn't be mocked. Commander David Fravor spent 18 years as a naval aviator, a pilot. In 2004, he had an unforgettable encounter with an aircraft he said was defying the laws of physics. Former Commander Fravor joins us tonight. Thanks a lot for coming on tonight. Um, t- tell, us, tell us what you saw. Well, we were on a, uh, we had launched on a routine training mission. Uh, when we joined up, we were told that the event was going to be canceled and that we have real world tasking and we were sent out to the west. Now, take in mind that this has taken place about 100 miles southwest of San Diego between San Diego and Ensenada, Mexico. Yep. Uh, on a clear, perfect day, blue waters. We get out to the spot where they tell us it's at. Um, we start looking around and both of us, both airplanes, see uh, disturbance in the water and a white. 40-foot-long, tic-tac-shaped object just hovering above the water, going forward, back, left, right. There's no rotor wash. There's no wings, nothing. So as we drive around in a clockwise flow, we get to about the 9 o'clock position, and I said, well, I'm going to go down and check it out, and the other jet is going to stay high. So as we go down, when we get to the 12 o'clock position, it starts to mirror us. So it's in a clockwise flow, and it's on the opposite side of the circle from us. And we continue this. It's in a climb. We're in a descent. We're getting a great look at it. This whole thing takes about probably up to five minutes from the time we show up. I get over to the 8 o'clock position. It's at about the 2 o'clock position, and I decide I'm going to go and see what it is, and it's about 2,000 feet below me. And I cut across the circle, and as I get within about a half mile of it, it rapidly accelerates to the south in about two seconds and disappears. What, what would you estimate the speed? Oh, well above supersonic. It, it like a bullet out of a gun, it took off. So from what you know about aerodynamics, mechanics, physics, uh, should this be possible, what you saw? 
Not with the technology that we have today. Not, not at all. Even now, even 13 years later, is there anything that you know of capable of this kind of behavior? No, there's nothing I know of. I mean, this when you look, when we saw the, the video with the IR, it has no exhaust, uh, it, you know, no, no discernible things of anything, form of propulsion. And this thing came from a dead hover over the water, just kind of moving around to a climb up to about 12,000 feet to rapidly accelerating away in a climb. And in less than two seconds, it was gone. And you figure you're talking 50 miles of visibility and you can easily see an object that size easily out to 10 miles and it just disappeared in seconds. Could, I mean, what would be the effects on a human pilot of the G-forces involved in that altitude change? Uh, well, the altitude wouldn't be bad. It would be the acceleration of the object. That's what it, right. Um, the, well, I, honestly, I wanted to fly it. <laughs> yeah, but, I bet. Uh, uh, you know, there's, you know, talking to some physicists, they don't think the human body could handle that kind of force with that Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like the human body could. So bottom line, what do you think this was? I believe, as do the other folks that were on the flight that we, when we visually saw it, that it was something not from this world. Uh, when, uh, presumably, you expressed that belief to your superiors, what did they say? Actually, we, we caught a lot of grief getting back to the boat, uh, and it got passed off as an event that no one could explain. Now, keep in mind, they had been tracking these for two weeks prior to us seeing it, and this was the first time that manned airplanes had been airborne uh, when the objects appeared. Okay, so that was 2004 off the coast of California. The next video is 2015 off the east coast over the Atlantic. again a white tic-tac shaped object about 40 some feet long flying across just a few feet above the water at fast enough speeds that the the navy jets can't keep up with it and um, the pilots are pretty pretty stoked as you as you hear so this is dr j allen Heineck. he's from ohio state and then harvard and then the u.s air force he said there are three undeniable empirical facts that even the most hardcore skeptic cannot deny that reports persist of UFO encounters, that it is a global phenomenon, and there are many highly trained and credible sources. There are lots of crackpots out there too, but a, a lot of the cases are military pilots. So I know that some of you think I'm crazy, so I'm just going to go ahead and put this on <laughs> right now. And I'm going to quote to you a 1997 CNN and Time magazine poll that says 80% of Americans believe the government is hiding extraterrestrial knowledge, 64% of Americans believe that uh, aliens have contacted Earth, 50% believe that aliens have abducted humans, and 75% believe that the Roswell crash was actually extraterrestrial. 1991, going way back, Roper poll says, uh, claims that 20 million people claim to have a UFO sighting and 4 million people worldwide claim to have been abducted by aliens. So my question this morning is, if this is a topic that half to three-fourths of Americans are at least curious in, 
or maybe even really believe, why in 45 years have I never heard it addressed in church? Probably because most one of pastors don't want to look like this. <laughs> I know why preachers don't want to touch it, because you look like this, all right? But if, if half to three-fourths of Americans believe that these things are real, then Christianity ought to have an answer. It ought to be addressing it. Because fascination in UFOs and aliens is not just American, it is worldwide, and it's not just modern, it is from all of human history. There have always been unknown and unnatural phenomena. In the ancient world, it was usually ascribed to, as something spiritual or magical, irregular events, particularly in the sky, that involved weather or stars or birds, were usually seen as good omens or bad omens. Strange lights were called will-o'-the-wisps, and strange creatures were fairies and sprites and trolls and gnomes and leprechauns and brownies and nymphs and mermaids. And unknown phenomena struck great fear into people. And the gods were sought and sacrifices were made and omens were read and good luck charms were employed and mysterious places were avoided. And there was angels and demons and monsters and gods everywhere and anywhere. And land and air and water. And from Africa to Northern Europe to the Holy Lands to East Asia to the American Indians, everybody had a spiritual worldview. Everybody. In all world history until 200 years ago. Everybody had a spiritual worldview. Until the Middle Ages in Christian Europe. As what was then called natural philosophy, now we call it science. It was called natural philosophy in the Middle Ages. Was employed to explain God's laws and the rules of biology and physics and chemistry. The scientific revolution did not happen because Europeans were smarter than anybody else in the world. It happened because they were Christian. Specifically and only because they were Christian. Because every other ancient mystery religion that believed in spirits and gods and fairies believed that the gods were capricious and arbitrary and they caused chaos. And that humans were bringing order through sacrifices and charms and omens. Christianity believes that God created perfect order and humans are the ones that create chaos. So Christianity came along and said, there is a God and he is the creator. And he created order and fear and superstition are not just rejected by Christians, it's commanded by God that we not be afraid and superstitious. Hello? So as more of the world became Christian, more of the world saw nature as an order rather than something to fight and be scared of. And so it was Christian scientists, Christian philosophers that said not only are there spiritual laws in the scriptures, but there is physical law in the material world. So it was then actually Christians who set humanity on the road to a materialistic, predictable, understandable, physical, what we would call scientific worldview that eventually over the last 500 years has rejected all monsters and magic and superstition and spiritual beings and activity. Everything is believed to have a material cause in biology, chemistry, and physics. And the height of this belief occurred in the 1800s with the advent of biological evolution and the first real atheism in human history. Absolutely everything was understood to be material and physical and everything could or at least we would in the future and must be explained by the laws of physics. 
So for a world that was coming out of superstition and fear and ignorance, the Newtonian science revolution created tremendous optimism. Evolution promised that we were moving from lower to higher species and from lower to higher intelligence. Mechanics seemed unlimited in its potential for power and speed. Electricity and the telephone changed life in ways that would have been unimaginable a century before. This was the age of the Industrial Revolution, of fantastic new technologies and discoveries. We were unstoppable. We could learn everything there was to know, we could control our own destiny, and we would create a perfectly evolved and manufactured world. And the science fiction writers began to imagine that brave new world. As early as the 1860s, during the American Civil War, Jules Verne was writing about trips to the moon and the bottom of the ocean and the center of the earth. Anything was possible to humanity that had sufficient technology and vision. Science fiction authors imagined rockets, lasers, robots, satellites, submarines, and cell phones long before they were a reality. In 1913, H.G. Wells wrote about atomic power, and it was actually his story that inspired Dr. Leo Szilard, who escaped Germany under the Nazis, to come to America and begin what we then knew as the atomic reactors that became the atomic bomb. It, was, it began as a science fiction idea that scientists said, hey, let's see if that's possible. And the science fiction writers imagined non-earthly life. If life had evolved here on Earth by chance and time and biological processes, then it was a mathematical certainty that it had evolved on another planet also. In fact, given that we had now decided the Earth was hundreds of millions of years old, if some other extraterrestrial species had only a million or two uh, years head start on us, they would be significantly more advanced in technology and knowledge than us. 1895, amateur astronomer Percival Lowell published a book called Mars, and he wrongly but very publicly concluded that there was liquid water on Mars and that it was flowing in canals dug by an intelligent life species, and the word Martian was invented. And those of you who are really old, remember they didn't used to be called aliens, they were Martians. Yes? You're really old. <laughs> it was Percival Lowell, astronomer, wrongly considering that there were water canals on the surface of Mars. Two years later, 1897, H.G. Wells wrote his novel, The War of the Worlds, about an invasion of Earth by higher evolved Martians with superior intelligence and robots and laser weapons. It was the beginning of an alien life genre of stories and now movies that is still extremely popular today. Star Wars, Star Trek, Avengers, E.T., Superman, Independence Day, Alien, Predator, Avatar, Close Encounters, Life, Contact, Arrival, Space Odyssey, even Galaxy Quest. <laughs> All are a story of an advanced alien life civilization that tops whatever we've got here on earth. And every one of those stories goes directly back to 1897, H.G. Wells' War of the World. In 1902, silent movies called A Trip to the Moon. The silent movies are the black and white ones where everybody's moving too fast, you know, and, and there's no sound, so you have to watch part, and then you have to read part, and then you watch part, and then you have to read what's going on, and... Okay, so 1902, a silent movie called A Trip to the Moon, uh, the first sci-fi movie. And guess what? They go to the moon, and what do they find? Moon devils that kidnap the astronauts and take them to their king. 
1902, we've got alien life living on the moon. In 1928, a symposium was held under the headline, and I quote, Eminent astronomers give their reasons for belief that life exists on the red planet. By 1928, uh, 30 years after Percival Lowell, it is just a public assumption in America and, the, and Europe that, that there is life on Mars and we will find it. And it was just a scientific fact that there's life on Mars. The concept of Martians became so widely held and actually not just a belief but an expectation. We will find life on Mars. It's just a matter of time to be able to prove it that in 1938, when Orson Welles, no relation to H.G. Wells, but when he radio-dramatized the War of the Worlds, there was actually people panicking. Historians think that maybe that panic has been overplayed a little bit, but, but it did happen. There was people who thought that it was a news broadcast rather than a, than a performance, and, and people panicked that Martians had attacked the Earth because the term Martian and the concept, the idea of alien life was so ubiquitous by that time in America that everybody just assumed that eventually we would find it. And the novel had been around for 40 years, and people had read it, and, and they were scared of that laser weapon. It cannot be stated clearly enough that it was evolutionary beliefs about the past and the future that created the curiosity about and the desire for and the belief in extraterrestrial life. But underneath all that optimism of the Industrial Revolution and the Science Revolution, roughly 100 years ago, the beginning of the 1900s, Beginning with Drs. Zillard and Fermi and Einstein and their contemporaries, the materialist view of the world began to unravel. First with atomic physics and then relativity, which connected time with matter. Um, then quantum physics that behave very, very un-Newtonian-like. Particles don't behave like pool balls like they should in Newtonian physics. They rather behave like waves of energy rather than anything solid. The revelation that, that matter actually doesn't exist in any solid form ever, anywhere, and that light and gravity are not constants. And evolution was found impossible to prove. Biological evolution from one species to another is still completely unsubstantiated. There is not one fossil or otherwise way to prove that one species became another. DNA and its constituents are immeasurably more complex than Darwin could have known, and the existence of matter and space and energy cannot be accurately explained or calculated by an uncreated Big Bang. So over the past 100 years, astronomy and physics and DNA biology have become less and less materialistic in their explanations of processes and measurements that were unimaginable and incalculable to Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin. In short, science became less solid and more mysterious and fearful. Again, because atomic science did not lead us to certainty about matter and inexhaustible power supply, but to a terrifying destruction from weapons that seemed certain to end humanity and possibly the planet. Science had promised that it would lead us to a bright future, and instead it led us to the brink of annihilation. Evolution did not lead to biological and technological perfection, but to Nazi Germany's grotesque attempt to establish a master race. Survival of the fittest carried out to its extreme. The numbers and the ideas of the old optimistic science gave way to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and the Higgs-Boson, the unobservable God particle, the particle that mathematically must exist but cannot be seen. And so, Mr. Heisenberg, the author of the uncertainty principle, said this, the first gulp from the glass of science will turn you into an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you.
In the 1800s, beginning even in the 1700s, science got real heady and super optimistic and we're going to progress and we're going to perfect. There's nothing we can't build. There's nothing we can't do. There's nothing we can't orchestrate. There's nothing we can't create. And then the 1900s, it all came crashing down. Nope, nothing we thought in the 1800s is correct. As the science revolution had begun, God was rejected, and natural processes were going to explain everything. We didn't need God or spirits to explain the unknown anymore. Friedrich Nietzsche, and then later John Lennon, declared that God was dead and we had killed him. But then science disappointed. It did not answer our questions. Indeed, it did not even accurately predict what we had discovered. And as Heisenberg, the true scientists had to admit that there was mystery. The atheists had to admit God back into the science lab. Atheist astronomer Dr. Paul Davies, who's the chairman of SETI, if you know who, what SETI is, uh, Dr. Paul Davies, an atheist astronomer, says, How did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? He's speaking of DNA. Nobody knows. There is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. Sir Fred Hoyle, British professor, Cambridge University, atheist, astronomer, says, There is not the slightest evidence that any primeval soup ever existed on Earth, let alone another planet. If the beginnings were not random, they must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. It is big enough to bury Darwin and the whole theory of evolution. Next quote from Dr. Hoyle is, We must now admit to ourselves that the probability of life arising by chance from evolution is the same probability of throwing six in dice five million consecutive times. The next sentence in that quote, he says, but I still believe in evolution. That's faith, folks. That's religious faith. He says you would have to roll a six with two dice five million times in a row. That's the same mathematical chance as life arising on its own randomly from some pool of sludge after the Big Bang. But he just so refused to believe the creation story. Dr. Crick, Dr. Francis Crick, Nobel Prize winner for discovering DNA in the 50s, was a virulent atheist. He hated Christians. And he discovered DNA. Won the Nobel Peace Prize for it. And he understands this discovery throws all evolutionary biology in the trash because DNA is so complex it cannot evolve a little bit at a time over millions of years. It all must be present in the same instant. It cannot form. But he hated religion. And so he says, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to be satisfied to get it going. The immensity of complex, coded, and precisely sequenced information written in DNA is absolutely staggering. Even the most simple-celled organism, it is impossible that it happened by chance. So Crick reasoned that since life could not have accidentally happened from non-living chemicals, and since I refuse to believe in a God. He wrote a book years later after winning the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA. He wrote a book later where he he seriously proposed that aliens brought DNA to Earth to start our evolutionary processes. He dressed it up in real scientific language. He called it directed panspermia. But 
regardless of what you call it, it's lunacy. He thought that, that aliens bringing DNA to earth was more believable than the Bible's creation story. And so we're back to aliens again. So whether our science was the optimistic and ordered and predictable and progressive science of the 1800s or the conundrums and the mysteries and the complexities of the science of the 1900s, alien life seemed to be part of the equation. Whether aliens are seen as our heroes, think Superman or Thor or Spock and Chewbacca, or our enemies, think Independence Day or Predator or Alien, or harmless friends like E.T. and Alf, or, or Mork or the Coneheads. We have woven alien life into our, as an everyday element of the modern imagination and entertainment. We take them for granted and we even love them. But there are some problems with alien visitation to this planet. One is time and distance. The closest uh, galaxy to the Milky Way is 2.5 million light years away. Meaning if you're flying at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles a second, 186,000 miles a second, that is seven trips around the equator in a second. That's the speed of light. If you fly at that speed, it would take you two and a half million years to get from the nearest galaxy to Earth. Time and distance are improbable. And Einstein, with, I know you've all heard of E equals MC squared, some of what that proves, Einstein showed that time and velocity and mass are related, and the faster we travel, the closer our mass comes to being infinite, and that actually biological life cannot exist after a certain speed because it would be destroyed. And so, acceleration aside, we could not exist in even a third of the speed of light. So, time and distance are a problem. Where are these visitors going to come from? Um, even if they were our closest neighbors, they're a long way away. <laughs> and secondly, energy is a problem. So to quote Dr. Dewey Hodges of the Georgia Institute of Technology, he said, let's take a 2,000-pound spacecraft. So let's just imagine Luke Skywalker's X-Wing fighter. Everybody with me? I don't know if that weighs 2,000 pounds or not, but we'll just say that it does. A 2,000-pound craft, which it would be a one-person spacecraft, uh, or one-alien spacecraft, um, the energy required, the energy required to boost that thing to just a third of the speed of light, which would then take eight million years to get to the nearest galaxy. Uh, but just a third of the speed of light, the energy required is more than all of the nuclear energy ever released by humans since the 1930s. Just to get it started to get up to the third of the speed of light. Then you need the same amount of energy to get it stopped when you arrive at whatever planet you're headed to. And we're not talking about the Independence Day ships. We're not talking about Darth Vader's battle destroyers. We're not talking even about the Enterprise. <laughs> we're talking about this tiny little one-man ship, 2,000 pounds. And then you would have to have it again to take off from that planet and again to stop on Earth four times the entire nuclear energy production of humanity so far. For one trip, for one Luke Skywalker. No matter how far you're going, that's how much energy it would take just to start and stop. Ain't going to happen. 
The movies are quite ridiculous. Also, another problem um, with energy in space is the collisions that happen. There are particles in space from microscopic dust particles all the way up to meteoroids and asteroids, but there's rocks, pebbles, you know, sand floating around in space, and our satellites around Earth, the, the communication satellites, the GPS satellites, the Hubble telescope, are continually sanded by these things. As they run into them, the Hubble telescope has piercings where little pieces of rock have gone through it because at the speed it's orbiting Earth, the energy that's produced in a collision whether we're on Earth or out in space, is the square of the speed. So the numbers get real big real quick. The Hubble telescope is just orbiting Earth, and it hits these little pebbles of sand, and it pierces the shield, metal shields that are on the side of the telescope. The space shuttle Challenger had a paint chip come off of one of the tanks, and it hit the windshield of the Challenger, and it took a chunk out of the windshield this big. A paint chip destroyed the windshield of the Challenger. So, Dr. Dewey Hodges says, a particle with the mass of a raisin, if it was hit by Luke Skywalker in his X-Wing fighter, traveling at a third of the speed of light, if you could get that fast, if you hit a raisin, it would be 80 times the Hiroshima bomb. Pinpointed on the ship in the size of a raisin. Interstellar travel is not possible. So the sci-fi TV shows and movies like the Enterprise has a force field around it. That's how they deal with it. Because they know you have to have a force field to travel in space. But still, the force field has to equal the energy of whatever collision is happening. It has to actually be greater than that. So you would have to create continuously, nonstop, 80 times the Hiroshima bomb just to stop a raisin. (laughs) Much less whatever else you're going to hit. And then there's the atmosphere. The grays, as the uh, alien believers call them, you know, the slender humanoids with the big heads and the great big black eyes, the grays seem awfully uh, uh, comfortable in our atmosphere. The mathematical chances that, if it was real, that their, their planet's atmosphere and their lungs evolved exactly like ours, is, it's non-existent. And then there's the Fermi paradox, Enrico Fermi was one of the uh, atomic physicists that his science led to the atomic bomb. One day he's waxing eloquent in the lab about alien life. He begins to calculate the population of alien civilizations that should be out there. He said, biology teaches, uh, evolution teaches that the earth is billions of years old. So he said, so in billions of years, it is a mathematical certainty that somebody else evolved also. Since we did, somebody else did. And even if they had just a few million years head start on us, which is a tiny drop in billions of years, they would have, even if they had a few million years advance on us, they would have been so far ahead of us, just like science fiction movies show, with their ships and their technology and their weapons, they could go to other planets and colonize them, as we expect to do. I mean, President Obama said we were going to go to Mars. And even if somebody had just a few million years lead on us, and they began to colonize other planets. So this original planet sends a colony out to this planet. And even if we space these out by a million years, a million years later, that's a long time, both of those planets send out colonies. And then a million years later, all four of those colonies send out colonies. Well, we're talking about huge amounts of time, just for the sake of you having numbers we can work with. In 40 million years, there would be a trillion inhabited planets. 
40 million years is a drop in the bucket compared to what evolution says we've been around. And so Fermi's paradox is, where is everybody? <laughs> there should be a trillion populated planets. If we use the very most conservative numbers, there should be a trillion populated planets. But SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, has radio listening stations in 50 locations around the Earth in all directions into outer space. And we've been listening to a million radio frequencies a second for 50 years. And guess how much we have heard? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. E.T. did not phone home. (laughs) Why not? Because they aren't there. I know that some of you, a lot of you actually, would want to know, but Mitch, okay, so yes, I believe in God and there's a creator, but God could have created life on other planets at the same time he created life on Earth. No, he, he could not have. Absolutely could not have. And I'm shocked, actually, at how many Christians don't know science or the Bible and uh, believe that this could happen. So I'm going to give you seven reasons why God couldn't have created life on other planets. Number one, the idea of intelligent ETs is certainly not just absent, but conspicuously absent from the Bible. To try to squeeze extraterrestrial intelligence into Scripture is not only forced and unnatural, but it is contradictory to the big picture of the whole Bible. Number two, Jesus is a human man. Jesus is a human, not a Klingon or a Vulcan. Okay? God became flesh and blood as a human man. He died as a human. Jesus was resurrected as a human. He ascended into heaven as a human. He is currently in heaven on the throne as a human man. John calls him the man and the son of man all through Revelation. And when he returns to earth, he is a human man. Period. He did not go off to other planets and become a Vulcan and die for them too. Because seriously, some have proposed that Jesus went to other planets and saved those races also. But Romans 6.10 says, The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. 1 Peter 3.8 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He's not going to be crucified and resurrected on other planets. Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ, if that was the case, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is also confirmed by the fact that the human church, the church on earth, is called the bride of Christ. Jesus is not marrying everybody else from other races also. Number three, the Bible indicates that the whole creation groans and travails under the weight of sin. Whose sin? Adam's sin, our sin, humanity's sin, cursed the entire creation. Every star and planet is cursed to be destroyed. Romans 8, 20 and 21. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. All of creation is looking at us, waiting for us, it says right there, to become one with Jesus. Following Adam's fall... The entire universe, everything Jesus created out to the furthest star is cursed and it will be destroyed to make way for a new heaven and a new earth. 
2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will dis- disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And Isaiah 34.4 says, All the host of heaven will be dissolved. The heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. All their host will fall down as the leaves fall from the vine, as fruit falls from a fig tree. Number four, reason why God could not have created alien life on some other star system. There is no room in the creation week for aliens. God created Adam and Eve on day six. And Genesis 2.7 says, Adam became a living being when God breathed the breath of life into him. Okay, so in Hebrew science, plants and animals weren't alive like we would say they are alive, and they're not because they don't have the breath of life in them. They're, what that means is Adam became conscious, had a spirit implanted in a way that your dog has a personality, but your dog is not eternal. doesn't have an eternal spirit. Hello? Okay? And plants are not even conscious. If you think so, we'll talk after service. <laughs> God created Adam and Eve on day six. Genesis 2, 7 says Adam became a living being. 1 Corinthians 15 says Adam was the first living being. That, now, we would say, no, God created trees and animals before. Well, yes, but not, they're not alive eternally, spiritually like humans. They're not made in the image of God. They don't have the breath of life in them. Okay. So 1 Corinthians says Adam was the first living being. Now back to Genesis, and it says, and day seven God rested, and he didn't create anymore. He created Adam and Eve, the first living beings, the first conscious beings, and then he quit. There's no room for Klingons to have been created because Genesis 2 also says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth as they were created by God. God says this is the whole story. We have the whole creation story. There's no Krypton or Asgard or Alderaan or Dagobah. Number five, the Bible makes no provision for God to redeem any other species but humans. Even the angels are left out. The holy ones that stayed holy, good for them. The ones that fell, they cannot be redeemed. God only redeems humans. He didn't redeem our dogs and cats. Only humans are redeemed. Everything else is going to be destroyed. Number six, all of God's attention in Scripture is toward the earth. He created the earth first, then the other heavenly bodies. He created the earth as a garden for us, and we were his highest creation made in his own image and likeness. And if we are, or we were before we sinned, if we are the very likeness of God, and we are the only living beings in creation, then all other creation is lower than us, and we can't entertain the imagination of some advanced civilization in other galaxies that outrank us in intelligence and technology. Jesus is returning to earth. God himself will descend in the new Jerusalem and live on the new earth. He will be our God, who's God? Humans, God. And we will be his people, none others. If there are other civilizations out there, it's kind of unfair that God arbitrarily picks earth to live on and make us his people and they get ignored. Number seven, the Bible does tell us very plainly who lives out there. If you've been around here for more than a few years, you should know. It's the host of heaven. 
the holy angels are somehow connected with the stars. And they hold their place. God's army is called the host of heaven and the stars are called the host of heaven. There's not alien civilizations, the holy angels. So, if the science fiction idea of alien life is complete man-made fabrication, and if there is no way that the laws of physics will allow for interstellar travel, and if there is not one shred of evidence of physical or biological life in outer space, and if the Bible doesn't allow us to believe in extraterrestrials, what about the people that claim they have personally interacted with aliens? I'm going to put this back on. What about those folks? Alien abductions, at least uh, 40, sorry, 4 million people claim to have been abducted by aliens. I'm going to assume that a lot of those are making it up just to join the bandwagon and get attention. And you would automatically write them off as crackpots. All right, so the public writes these people off as crackpots who wear tinfoil hats because they don't want the aliens to read their minds and they, they think they have microchips implanted in them so the aliens can find them. And there's some really weird people out there, but I think it's worth taking a look at. I think there's something to it. There, sure, there are crackpots. I mean, look around this room. <laughs> says, says the preacher with the tinfoil hat on. Sure, there are crackpots, but... I want to take a look at what the experiencers, as they call themselves, the experiencers claim they have experienced. Alien abduction, as it is now called, is the experience that people say they have where they are contacted by extraterrestrial life and taken onto a spaceship where they have interaction. And there is a commonality to all these experiences. And sure, some could be playing off of others. They've read past reports, so they just say the same thing. I understand that. But we'll, get, we'll address that in just a moment. The commonalities of alien abduction experiences that people claim to have is that there's some sort of contact, a meeting, an abduction. Usually it happens at night in bed or when they're driving alone in a car at night in the dark. The greys, as they're called, these alien life forms, come and contact them and take them onto their spaceship. When the contact happens, almost all of the people say they become paralyzed in their body and they can't speak. And they are taken against their will, either walking or just floating through the roof up into the spaceship. They're taken against their will, and they meet the greys, or these slender, long, humanoid things with big black eyes and huge heads. And there is always some sort of an examination, um, a body examination of the human that focuses on the cranium and the spine and the genitalia and the rectum. Most abductees report that this is painful, some of it severe pain, and that the aliens are completely uncaring, unemotional, unconcerned about the pain that they're causing. There is almost always a sexual component where the abductees report that their bodies were forcibly molested in some way and that the aliens were attempting artificial reproduction, a combination of themselves and the humans. Um, everybody says that the communication is telepathic, that the aliens don't speak verbally or audibly. They just speak in the person's mind. There is sometimes a travel component where they go somewhere into outer space or the aliens just tell them where they're from. Uh, we're from this star system and we've come all this way and we've chosen you to reveal ourselves to. 
And then there is almost always a religious component to this. Uh, the abductees, when they come back from the spaceship, they say that the aliens told them that they are higher beings than humans, and they tell the people that all of the gods and angels and fairies of the ancient world was us. This is what the aliens say, that when the Norse saw us, they thought it was Thor and Odin. And when the Christians saw Jesus, it was really us. And when the Chinese had their gods, it was really us. We've been coming to earth forever, and everybody mistook us as gods and angels and fairies, but it's really us. They claim to be the gods and angels of the ancient world. They tell the people they've kidnapped that Jesus was one of them, and that's why he could do the miracles that he did. They claim that they are the source of the miracles in the Bible. They will tell them that the star of Bethlehem was really a UFO. They will tell them that the light and the voice coming out of Moses' burning bush was one of us. We were speaking to Moses, um, and he just thought it was Yahweh God. Um, Jesus could walk on water because he's one of us, and he understands how to defy gravity. And then, almost always, the abductee will get taken through the ship and introduced to a dead religious figure, and it's usually Jesus. Like, here, this is Jesus. He's one of us. And they will introduce them. Sometimes it's Buddha or Muhammad and, and others, but it's usually Jesus. They go out of their way to stress that Christianity is wrong, or at least that all religions are the same, and that they're all just related to them. They tell the people that one day they will reveal themselves to all of humanity as the true gods and the enlightened leaders of the universe. But until then, you, the one that we have abducted and brought to our ship, you know the real truth and you need to tell everybody. This is what they're told. And then they wake up back in bed or back in their car. Uh, there are other less common but recurring components to that, but these are the main ones. 80% of people who claim to have been abducted report they were out of their body during the experience. 50% report a healing of some malady or pain by the aliens. 55% report missing time when they are gone. And 85% of the people who say they've been abducted by aliens believe that their experience was spiritual rather than physical. So Dr. John Mack, who is a Harvard psychiatrist, came across some alien abductees in his practice. They were having emotional trouble with this experience, and they come to him for help. And he is not a believer in anything. He's not a Christian. He's not an alien believer. He's just a psychiatrist. And he was so fascinated with these crackpot people who believed that they had contacted aliens that he decided to seek out more abductees because he was going to diagnose a new psychiatric disorder. These people are lunatic. But the more victims he talked to, he saw that their trauma was real. And people who had never met each other described the same events. He was started completely skeptical. He was working toward diagnosing a new psychiatric disorder, but the more patients he saw, the more trauma he found, the more unrehearsed similarities he heard. He claimed that his patients were completely independent. They did not know each other, and they had not heard each other's stories, yet they are remarkably similar. He had some patients as young as two or three years old describe the same thing that adults would describe. He said that throws out personality issues where somebody wants to just get attention. And the two and three-year-olds could not know about the components of their experience unless it had happened. He said, most of my patients were painfully ashamed to tell their story. They weren't gaining anything 
by making it public. And he said their emotional trauma was real. It was not imagined. So he says, and this is a quote, this is the definition of real experience. Madness doesn't work that way. Mass hysteria doesn't work that way. Insanity doesn't work that way. Dreams don't work that way. Fantasy doesn't work that way. Unquote. Usually, experiencers have multiple visitations over their entire life. Sometimes it begins in childhood, other times adulthood, but it's not a one-time deal. Um, Most of the people who claim to be abducted believed in the occult or extraterrestrial life before the experiences began. Some of them are very public and proud of the fact that they have been chosen by this higher enlightened uh, beings, and they have religious faith in these things. They are certain that Jesus was an E.T., and that all religions are just misapplied worship of these entities. Uh, Groups such as the Raelians and Scientology and the Heaven's Gate suicide cult put their spiritual faith in these entities. There's actually a man in uh, New Mexico, Arizona, who wrote a new gospel to add to the Bible given to him by one of the aliens on a ship. Anybody know another group that that sounds like? So some are very public and proud, and and they worship these things, and they are happy to be the messengers of these aliens. Other abductees are deeply traumatized, ashamed by what's been done to them. They live in terror of the next visit. They live in private isolation because of fear of rejection as a freak if they tell anybody what they're experiencing. But in 1997, there was a man who was publicly identified only as Bill F., uh, who was an experiencer, as they call themselves. He, He had experienced abduction events. He said one night he's in bed and the greys came into his bedroom and they, they lifted him up on a pole that they had inserted in his rear end. <clears throat> they lifted him up to the ceiling and they were laughing at him. And he cried out, help me, Jesus! And he said instantly they screamed and disappeared. And he said, I fell on the bed so hard my wife woke up and said, why are you jumping on the bed? That testimony was picked up by a Florida newspaper under the headline, Can Jesus Stop Alien Abductions? And they were mocking both alien abductions and Christians. But amongst UFO people and alien people who, who know each other, and, and there was a big storm where everybody said, Yeah, we know about that. Where the experiences disappear when somebody calls on the name of Jesus, but we don't know what to do with that. Because they aren't Christian, these UFO people and alien people. So they didn't know what to do. What does that mean? What is that? Well, Romans 10.13 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because they aren't aliens, they're demons. It's demonic. It is not extraterrestrial. There is absolutely no physical evidence ever of a UFO or an alien abduction. You would think that if there's 4 million people who've been on a spaceship, surely somebody could have at least swiped a monogram towel or something. I mean, there is no physical evidence anywhere of these abductions. People claim that they've got microchips and they've got bruises and burns and and things, but it doesn't prove much. There was a conference at MIT on alien abductions, and five investigators claimed that they were there in the room with the abductee victim who had an experience, and they said, I was there, I sat there the whole time. They didn't go anywhere. They just were asleep. It's spiritual. 
Also, another evidence that this is demonic is that the aliens, when they tell people on the ship, they tell them where they're from. Back in the 50s, anybody who was ever abducted by aliens was told that we're from Mars. Well, then it became Saturn. And then as we proved through the 50s and 60s that there's no life in our solar system, they just kept getting further and further out where we can't test them. No alien abductees now are told that they're from Mars because that would be a joke. So we're from way out there where you can't know. But the biggest proof that these things are not aliens, that it's demonic, it's, it's, it's evil spirits tormenting people, is the religious message. If it's an actual alien race coming from a distant star system, why would they spend all the resources that it would take to get here to do a bunch of acrobatic flight tricks and come and say that we're Jesus? Over and over and over again, and that's all they do. It's ridiculous. You wouldn't spend those resources to come and do some, some flight tricks and then tell everybody, well, don't believe in Jesus because he's with us. If it truly existed that there were ships and a race that could get here, they would not just have the technology to get here. They would have the technology and weapons to take over the planet, and they would because power always equals force. And Independence Day is the scenario. It makes no logical sense at all that an advanced, enlightened race would come with the sole express purpose to dismantle our faith in the Bible. And that's all they do. How would they even know about Jesus in the Bible? So, Norio Hiawaka, who is also a non-Christian, but an UFO and alien abduction investigator, says this, we can be absolutely sure after many years of investigation into this phenomenon that these alleged aliens coming to us from distant star systems are nothing of the sort. Rather, they are deceptive supernatural entities emanating from another dimension. So there are ministries in Roswell, New Mexico that lead people out of this. There are former experiencers who have gotten saved and have used the name of Jesus to stop what was being done to them and they, there are thousands of people worldwide who have been brought into Christ when Christians tell them, you know what, we believe you, but you're being lied to. We are the ones with hope. We're the ones who can teach them how to end these experiences. So somebody is still asking, what in the world could this possibly have to do with me in Union County? You're not seeing any UFOs. Well, it's possible that somebody in the room has, and you think you've seen or been approached by something or someone so let me talk to that person first i'm here to tell you that i believe you i absolutely believe you that you had those experiences i don't think you're crazy i also believe that the entities you're dealing with are real if you hear voices or you think that they're reading your mind you're right i'm also here to tell you that they're lying to you whatever entities you've encountered They are not your savior, they are not aliens, they are not gods, they have no power or authority. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the only son of the only God. He is forever a human man, not an alien. His name is above every other name. His name is the only name given among men by which we must be saved. And at his name every knee will bow, everyone in earth and in the heavens. To the rest of you, I would say be ready to minister because they're maybe not with aliens, but there are people who are demonically tormented all over LeGrand. I asked a city police officer just Thursday night. I said, can I do a ride along with you? 
I, I need to know how to pray for our city. And he said, there's a lot of demons. That was his first response. There's a lot of demons. So you may not find crackpots that think they're on spaceships, but you will find people on meth, and that stuff ain't just chemical. Be ready to minister. I have had people sent to me by law enforcement and medical professionals here in town who, if they addressed spiritual stuff, they would be fired. But on the side, they say, you need to go see the pastor of Nissan. He can help you in a way that I can't. Or they tell me, you need to reach out to so-and-so, ask him to come in. And I've had some success. Not in every case, but we've seen a lot of people set free from some very tormenting experiences. Be ready. Instead of scoffing and rejecting these people, we ought to be the people and the place that is most ready to help them and set them free. Those who think they're crazy won't help them. They'll just give them a pill or ignore them and write them off. Those who believe them won't help them because, oh, yeah, tell me more about it. We're the ones who can say, you're not crazy. We believe you, but here's how you can put a stop to it. Here's the real truth. Be ready because the largest religious group in Union County is following the teachings of an alien. Mormons are the biggest religious group in our county. And Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, receiving it from an angel, Moroni. Remember, the aliens claim to be the angels. Moroni is not an angel from God. Because 2 Corinthians 11 says, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. And Galatians chapter 1 says there are some who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Even if we or an angel from heaven, think alien, from the heavens, preach any other gospel to you other than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And we say it again, as we said before, anyone who preaches any other gospel to you other than what you have received, let him be cursed. The whole time I've been talking to you, you think, why are you mentioning you're wasting my time? I don't believe in aliens and UFOs. You thought I was talking about tinfoil hats and crackpots. I'm talking about your next door neighbors and the kid in school tomorrow morning. It is the largest religious group in in Union County. And these are great people, otherwise normal. But they believe that there are millions of populated planets out there. All the dead Bible characters are now gods on their own planet. Abraham went to Kolob and he's now the god of his own species. Uh, this race that lives on the planet and, and every good Mormon who dies will go and be a God equal to Yahweh. But these normal, nice, otherwise great people, I love my Mormon neighbors and friends. I got a Mormon neighbor that I like more than most of my Christian brothers. He's a great guy. That's how deceptive this stuff is. So you've been thinking, this stuff is really crackpot, Mitch. But it's every day in Union County. And it's super deceptive to otherwise people who have some sort of Christian belief. When Paul says, don't even believe an angel if he appears to you, that's not a holy angel. The angels of God would not come and deliver a different gospel. It is an unholy angel. Be ready to minister both to those tormented by evil spirits and your Mormon neighbors. And also the number two religion in the whole world is following an evil angel. 
Muhammad says he got the book, the Quran, from the angel Gabriel. It was not the real Gabriel. Because that spirit that wrote that book is evil, Islam is dark and oppressive and evil. Ephesians 6, we are not fighting against physical enemies, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the unseen world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. Amen.